Uh, we are going to be doing a 10-week uh, study of Philippians. Uh, it will take us uh, to the week uh, before uh, Thanksgiving. So if you would turn in your Bible to uh, uh, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, uh, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my, pr uh, my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, Paul writes this letter around uh, 60 to 62 A.D. Uh, Epaphroditus, uh, a partner in the gospel with Paul, a fellow servant, has uh, brought support to Paul, who was in prison, from this local church in Philippi. And so Paul is writing that church in response to their support. Uh, Paul planted the church of Philippi 10 years prior on his uh, a second missionary journey. And we see his journey in uh, Acts 16 to 18. Uh, uh, that, that second missionary trip, Paul's plan was to retrace the steps he took on the first trip. He had gone out and he had planted numerous churches, and now he wants to go back and check on them and encourage them. But in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit... Uh, forbade him from ministering in Ephesus. And the Spirit stopped him from going to Bethania. And then this happened in Acts 16. You can just listen. Uh, verses, it's verses 9 and 10 if you're taking notes. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, Philippi is in Macedonia, was standing there urging Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
the city of Philippi was not a large city. Uh, it only had 10,000 inhabitants. Uh, but it was a historically significant history. It was founded uh, in 360 B.C. by the Greeks. And interestingly, Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great, named the city after himself. And then uh, about 300 years later in 42 B.C., uh, Mark Anthony and Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, uh, just think Shakespearean tragedies, uh, they defeated Brutus and Cassius there. Brutus and Cassius, if you remember, were the men who assassinated uh, Julius Caesar. And to commemorate the victory, Augustus declared Philippi a prominent Roman city which uh, gave that city certain, and its citizens, certain legal and tax privileges. And so Paul goes to this city of Philippi in Macedonia. And as was his normal practice, uh, he, he sought to go to a synagogue, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. Uh, the reason Paul would go to a synagogue is because uh, he would find uh, Jews who believed in the one true God, Yahweh, and, and, and would believe in the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul would then try to prove uh, Christ uh, as their Savior through the scriptures. But there was no synagogue, uh, meaning that there were less than 10 Jewish men in the city. And in Acts 6, we read this, since there was no synagogue, uh, it says, we went outside the gate to the river, uh, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. Uh, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to believe the things that Paul had said. So this city is a historically significant city, but it's also uh, important in the, the, the history of Christianity. Uh, this is, will be the first church in Europe. The gospel is now spreading outside of the Middle East and outside of Greece to Europe itself. And, and for most of us who, well, come from a European uh, background, that's our heritage, isn't it? This is how the gospel has come to us. And so even before we get to our text, I just want to make a, as we think about that reality, I want us to, to consider an important uh, theological observation. And that's God's sovereignty over all of life and all that happens. God's providence his lordship over history should be an anchor and an assurance to us during the ups and downs of life. Now, as Christians, it's not just uh, the Church of Philippi. The whole Old Testament and New Testament is part of our, our heritage. In Galatians 3, uh, we who are Gentiles are considered Abraham's offspring, 
heirs of promise according to faith. Uh, But for most of us, as the gospel in this account reaches Europe, we begin to see the immediate historical connection to us. The gospel spreads throughout Europe and then is brought to America and it is finally brought to you and I. But this is not simply uh, an abstract historical phenomenon. It is a God-ordained reality as God unfolds history for us. When God called Paul in this dream to Macedonia, God had Lydia's salvation in mind. But he also had your salvation in mind. Think of uh, what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. God chose us in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of God's will. Now, this is the mystery of the, the love and goodness that God has towards us who are his elect, those chosen even before time began. In Ephesians 2, we're told that we are born children of wrath, but we're made children of God through faith as God planned for us in eternity. We who are in Christ tonight We're part of God's plan and in God's mind when he called Paul to Macedonia. God has been working in human history to save you and me. And he is working in us and through us to save others. The plan doesn't just end with us. And so this is our confidence for the future. If God began this process, not just 2,000 years ago in Macedonia, but before time began, we're going to see in our text that God says, I'm going to complete it. When Christ returns, he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. If we have saving faith in Christ, our future is secure. Not because we are so faithful to God. I think I speak for all of us when I say we fail often. And if I'm not speaking 
for all of us, please don't tell me because I'll feel like a total failure. It's, <laughs> it's not so much that we are faithful to God. It's that God is always faithful to us. Sometimes this idea of our, our, the security of our future is called et- eternal security. And that's really not the proper name for the doctrine. The doctrine is the perseverance of the saints. It's not so much, eternal security says, makes it sound as though you have a ticket to get into heaven and there's nothing that God can do about it. He gave me a ticket, it's too late now. And that's, that's, that's not what's going on. Perseverance of the saints means that it's God who perseveres in us. God who began this work, who brought us uh, to faith through regeneration, is the God who sanctifies us and will bring us to glory. He saves us in order that we might bear fruit to his glory. So that we would be children of light who walk in the light. Think of 1 John 1, verses 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with Christ but walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light, that's an evidence, a demonstration of what God has done. That he has begun this work in us. And if that is us, then God is always working for our good. He is always working in us, and he will have his way in us. Think of uh, Romans 8. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight. we all know so well, but I'm going to read 28 to 30. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together. It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to God's purpose and those who love him. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is perfecting us. He is sanctifying us in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What God began, he will perfect. And so as we go through life and we struggle with the ongoing indwelling sin, that old nature that still clings to us, we have this great hope. 
that God will never give up on us. And that he is working even in our failures to conform us to himself. The wonderful thing about uh, failing, uh, we, we feel bad, we feel like failures, but it's a reminder how much we need God. It's a reminder you have not arrived yet. You're not what you're going to be. Sometimes we think, you know, we overcome some of the big sins and we think we're doing okay. But then when we see sin in ourselves, it should remind us that from beginning to end, it's all dependency on God. There's never a moment of life that we don't need God and his spirit working in us. God works in us in this holistic way. He changes us from the inside out. He declares us righteous in our justification and then makes us righteous in Christ. And so he is using all things in our life, whether we understand them or not, for our good. That's a hard truth to sometimes believe. But it's seen in both the Old and New Testament. Think of Joseph in Genesis. Sold into slavery by his brothers falsely accused and thrown in prison and forgotten. He's a young man. There had to be times that he thought, this, this is not right. This is not fair. Where is God in the midst of this? But God uh, freed him and elevated him to be prime minister of, of uh, Egypt. And after his father dies, uh, his brothers come to him in fear. He can, he can have them killed. What does Joseph say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good that he might save many people. What an amazing statement. What you intended for, it, and it's not just intent, it was evil. They were guilty. Yet the goodness and faithfulness and the glory and the sovereignty of God is not thwarted by the sins of men. Even when men rebel and sin, they are accomplishing God's purposes. We see it in the New Testament with Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says Jesus was killed by lawless men. But according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The men who killed Jesus are guilty. And when they faced God, they gave an account. 
yet. God's purpose was accomplished. The sinfulness of those evil men could not overrule or undermine the plan of God. God used them to accomplish his purpose and his plan. God is not the author of sin, but works even through sin to accomplish his good. I can look back over my life, and, and if I think very long about it, I can get discouraged. Just the amount of sin and rebellion, not out of ignorance, just out of, I want to do what I want to do. Just selfishness. Yet, as I look back, at how my life has played out, I see the hand of God. And I see how God used even my selfishness to bring me to places and to do things in my life that ultimately were for my good and was his will for me. How those realities go together that, that's, in God's, that's in the hands of God. We don't have to understand that. But we can look back and see the graciousness of God, where God works not in spite of sin, but even through sin. God is bigger than it all. And are we trusting the goodness and faithfulness of God? Are we trusting the goodness and faithfulness of God? Not just for the future, but for right now. Sometimes as believers, it's uh, when I get to heaven, the good is, you know, one day I'll die. And What's that old song, when we all get to heaven? Remember that song? What a day of rejoicing that will be. And it will be a day of rejoicing. But we should be rejoicing now. Because God in this very present moment is working through the details of your life. Even if if you're thinking, my life stinks right now. And I don't understand how God is using this. And I don't see how God can bring about good for me. He is working out good for you. God's heart is always good for you. If God is working in all of life, that means he's even working in the mundane moments of life as well as the supernatural. We tend to, as Christians, look for and believe that God is working when something unusual or supernatural happens in our life or in the life of someone else. And praise God when those things happen. That's, that's, that's wonderful. But God is working in every moment. Most of life is, is mundane. There's a great book by Michael Horton called Ordinary. And in the book, he, 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 he doesn't argue against making the most of your life, you know, sort of the, the emphasis in culture or 
if you're if you go to a Christian college, the, uh, uh, you know, um, if you're going to be sold out for Jesus, you got to go to the mission field. Or if you're going to be sold out for Jesus, you got to, you know, dig wells in Africa or you know, risk your life someplace. And if God calls you to do that, that's wonderful. But it's also wonderful just to live a faithful life in your local church, to love your spouse, to raise your kids, to serve your church, to minister to your neighbors. That's just as glorious. And if that's what God has called you to, which that's what God has called most of us to, most of us are called to very ordinary lives. But God is working in that. That's where God works. It's interesting. Uh, in, in, as we described Paul going to Macedonia, I'm saying, you know, God's working in ordinary things, but he gives Paul this vision. Why, where's my vision? Um, Paul starts off the second, uh, second missionary journey not with a word from the Lord to go do it. He just decided. You know what? We should go back and check on those churches. And he just made plans. Not divorced from God. I mean, we're not giving all the details, but I'm trusting that Paul prayed about it and he felt that this was a good thing. Lord, and I think this is what you want me to do, and so I'm going to do it. And he stepped out in faith. And it wasn't until he was going to do something different than what God intended for him that God intervened. Sometimes we, and, and I, I understand this, we're looking for sort of the Shekinah glory for the will of God. Lord, tell me what to do. And, and we should pray that. In fact, we should pray it more often than we do. There's so much of life that we don't go to God about and ask him, is this good for me? Is this what we think there's this whole area of stuff that we get to decide about ourselves? The story just came to my mind. Uh, In in, uh, the Old Testament, Joshua is conquering uh, Israel, the land of promise. And as nations are getting conquered, there's a nation that decides, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get some ratty old clothes and some dried out bread, and we're going to go and tell them we're coming from far away. Why don't, we, why don't we make a treaty? And so they come, and they even, Joshua even asks, how do we know you're not from here? Well, look at our bread. Look at our clothes. Isn't it obvious? The one thing, and it, well, it makes sense to me. Looks like they traveled a long way. The thing they didn't do is pray. Just, God, what should we do? How much of life do we think we have authority over to make our own decisions? Now, God doesn't give us a detail of every decision in the Bible. But shouldn't we ask? Lord, is there something different you want? This is what I'm thinking of doing. And God is faithful to correct and to intervene. But most of the time, 
We follow the path that we think is best, trusting God to be faithful, asking him to lead us, and then stepping out in faith. You know, how God ministers to each individual is always a little different. Uh, most of my life, when I pray for God to lead, it, it's kind of stepping out slowly, kind of looking back, is this right? Lord, if it's wrong, stop me. There's only been two times in my life where I f- believed that God spoke to me, not in some audible way, but in some unusual fashion. Two times. Undeniably, that was not me. That was God. Both in the same year. And so both of them almost 35 years ago. Now, if I knew I only had two, two times I was going to get that, I wouldn't have wasted them then. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because God is faithful. God, and God may give some people numbers of experiences. But the normal pattern for most Christians is we have the word and the spirit. We have all we, all we need for life and godliness. If we would obey what it says and seek to have a mind towards the things of God, that would make a lot of decisions for us. And now, if, if you have an unusual experience or a prophetic word, praise God. Isn't that wonderful? But it's the Spirit who gives gifts and experiences as he chooses. And so, we need to trust him even in the ordinary moments of life. This is all about planting a church in Macedonia. It was just an ordinary, it's led to us here and now as God has unfolded history for you. Verses one to four of our text. Paul and Timothy Servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God at all the remembrance of you, always praying for you with joy in my heart. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is grateful for the Philippian church and its continued commitment to the gospel from the first day until now, from the point of their conversion up until this present moment. He is thankful, he is joyful for their partnership. Sometimes the the Greek word is koinonia. That's kind of a common word in, in some circles of Christianity. It means... Uh, uh, the SV NIV, NIV uh, translated partnership, New American Standard participation, uh, New Revised Standard sharing in the gospel, 
King James Version, fellowship in the gospel. The word can also mean community, which is a popular term today. It's the idea of of life invested in one another. It could include uh, monetary support, but it's not limited to that. In Philippians 4, the, the Philippians send Paul money. But it's more than just sending money. They have partnered with Paul in his proclamation of the gospel. They have worked with him. But I think that Paul is driving to something much deeper. More than simply the fact that they have sent him money or they've worked with him in his ministry. This partnership, this participation, this sharing, this fellowship was not just in the work of the gospel, but it's sharing in the person of Jesus Christ. They have a shared life together in him. It's interesting, uh, when the King James uh, translates the term as fellowship, we, we tend to think of, um, you know, uh, fellowship time or fellowship mall. It's a time or a place where we get to, to enjoy one another's company. We get to build relationship, and, and it, 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 that's true. Um, but sometimes we, we kind of think that, okay, if I have coffee with a non-believer, that's called friendship. If I have coffee with a Christian, that's called fellowship. Uh, but the idea of partnership or participation in the gospel speaks of something more. We're a part of something together. We are united to Christ. Think of um, Ephesians 1.3. All the spiritual blessings are ours in Christ, in union with him. All of our salvation is in Christ. It all flows from him as we are united to him through faith. United to him, together we are his body and his bride. We are part of one another. We are partakers, sharers in the gospel. We are his body and therefore belong to each other. Think of uh, 1 Corinthians 10. This is verses 1 to 4. Our forefathers were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. If we're a Christian, we all drink from the same rock. We all eat the same spiritual food. We have a shared life in him. Later on in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. And he says, uh, the cup, this is verse 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a sharing in the blood of Christ? 
and the bread that we break, is it not a participation in, a koinonia, a sharing in the body of Christ? When we eat the bread and we drink the juice or the wine, we participate in the crucifixion of Christ in some mystical way. Not physically. We're not eating his, his flesh and his blood, but we're eating upon Christ spiritually. This idea that Paul's talking about in verse 5, this partnership, this fellowship, this sharing in the gospel is the faith that we all share together. Verse 7b, uh, he, he comes around to it again. You're all partakers. Share with me of grace, the grace of the gospel, the grace that we receive from Christ. Just as there is this Trinitarian unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, there is this mystical union of Christ and his body. Where Christ is, we are seated with him. We read that and we think, oh, isn't that sweet? Like that's a metaphor or something. It's kind of like we're seated. No. We are seated with Christ. Where he is, we are there as well. That's what our union with him is like. And you're saying, I don't understand. I don't either. But that's what the Bible says. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is with us and in us by his Spirit, and we have fellowship, union with God in Christ through the indwelling Spirit resulting in fellowship, spiritual but real fellowship with each other. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer in John 17, he says this. This is the night before he's going to be crucified. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, talking about his 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, which means you and me. The night before Jesus died, he prayed for you and me. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we live as one, we give testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel that God sent Christ to save people. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God loves us 
as much as he loves Jesus because we are one with him. And because we're one with him, we are one with each other. There is to be no disunity. Now, whatever partnership or fellowship we experience externally, we need to understand flows from an internal, internal reality because we internally fellowship with Christ. Our partnership, therefore, is a manifestation of the partnership and the fellowship we have with God. And so as we... um, support missionaries. We have mission partners, or we talk about our partnership in sovereign grace, or on a Sunday morning, we pray for other gospel-preaching local churches. We're giving a manifestation of the reality of what it means to be one. But any tangible, physical fellowshipping uh, flows from a real fellowship with God. And when does that fellowship begin? At conversion. Verse 5b again. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the day that you first believed. And where is it heading? Verse 6. And I am sure of this that this partnership you've had with me from the beginning, I am sure of this, that God, who began this work of partnership, will bring it to completion. That's the sense of it. God began this partnership, and God will perfect this partnership. Because as much as we try to have unity, and we're called to unity, we live in a fallen world. The fact that there are divisions in churches, the fact that we have misunderstandings, the fact that we don't all agree on certain theological issues. Even when that's not sinful. You know, we believe things in this church that another church may have a different take on. It's because we're not perfected yet. But when we see Jesus, when we are perfected, whether our understanding is going to be so full that, that we'll know the truth and realize we were all wrong about some of it, or we're just going to be so overwhelmed by the presence of Christ that we're going to, I don't care anymore. I just want to sit and listen to Jesus. All the other stuff just doesn't matter anymore. I think it's going to be a little bit of both. Whatever limitations we have in this present world, in this present mind, will be eliminated because we'll have a higher level of existence. And we're not going to get caught up with our point of view because there will be only one point of view. God will speak and we will believe it. It's a return to the garden, isn't it? When we're preaching through Genesis, what did I say a few weeks ago? We were created to hear one voice to listen to one voice, to believe one voice. We will listen to Christ's voice, and we will believe it, and that will be the end of it. And so our life is heading towards this direction of 
ultimate reality, this perfection that we'll experience in the new creation. And so shouldn't we try to live that now? Okay, we have some disagreements. Why do we have to live like that's the most important thing? They exist. We don't agree or we don't understand or... Let's, let's celebrate the unity that we have. Let's love each other in spite of... It's like, think about marriage. It's the same thing as marriage. Do you agree with your spouse on everything? And there's silence in the room as though, yes, we do. No, you don't. No, you do not. And if you focus on the things that you disagree about, what happens? There's conflict. There's unrest. Now, there are some things that are important and serious, and they need to be confronted and talked about. But even then, you can't convince the other person, can you? And at some point, you just got to say, okay. Years ago, I'll tell a story about Kyle. <laughs> and let's assume in this story, and uh, for the sake of argument, he was wrong, I was right. Um, though, if he was telling a story, it would probably be the reverse. Um, this is back in the 90s. And we were disagreeing about an issue. It was at an elders meeting. It's when my dad was still senior pastor. And... Uh, and I remember leaving frustrated. And it's one of those moments you're going, why can't he see it the way I see it? Because I'm so right. And I remember, uh, it was a, I think it was a Monday. I think we met on Mondays then. I was going down to Peter Davison. Peter Davison was an artist we worked with down in Cape May County when we did newspaper ads back then. And I remember driving, thinking about the issue and I, and I thought, does Kyle want to hurt the church? No, he doesn't want to hurt the church. Is Kyle stupid? <laughs> no, Kyle's not. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> in, case, in case I had the wrong answer, Steve Kyle's telling me in the back. No, he's not. Um, <laughs> No, he's not stupid. Huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's not a total moron. No. Um, and then I thought, then we just see it differently. There's freedom in that. You go, okay, what can I do about it? Nothing. Another elder story. I remember a few years ago, uh, discussion, there was some disagreement about what we should do in a given case, uh, a situation. And I think it was Paul and I that were in disagreement. Why is everyone disagreeing with me? I don't understand. <laughs> What's the problem there? Um, and it was one of those things, I woke up in the middle of the night wondering, why, I don't, I'm, no, no. And I tossed and turned in bed for a couple of hours just thinking about it. Two thoughts that came to mind, and I believe God was nudging me in this. Again, it, it, it comes to the same conclusion, but it was, do I believe 
that the Bible teaches that the church is led by a plurality of elders. In other words, a team leadership in the church. That's the model that we see in the New Testament over and over again. So I have to say, yes. Will I trust God? Yes. If, if the other elders don't see it the way I see it, it's because God hasn't opened my eyes to see what they see or hasn't opened their eyes to see what I see or whatever. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of you know, again, going back to marriage. Sometimes they just don't see it the same. And Lord, let me just rest in you in the midst of this. It's not my job to change their mind. Unity in the body is of such importance that in 1 Corinthians, when it talks about lawsuits among Christians, Paul says, wouldn't it be better to be defrauded than go to court with one another? Wouldn't it better to be defrauded? The wonderful thing is, you know, even as we disagree, that's a moment for the gospel as well, isn't it? Will we love in spite of the disagreement? Will we speak with kindness and gentleness? We get to exercise patience. We get to put into practice the fruit of the Spirit. I, I, when, we, when I, I would teach the Changing Hearts, Changing Lives curriculum, it's been a few years since I taught it, and we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, I would say, I manifest the fruit of the Spirit perfectly when I'm by myself. I am so loving and patient with myself. Those things only get tested and strengthened in relationship with others. In the heat, yeah. We are saved, we are being saved, and what God started, he will complete. It all begins and ends with God as he gives the new birth and he perseveres in us. And he who will perfect us. And so Paul thinks of the Philippians uh, with joy and with thanksgiving, for it's God's work in them now into eternity. And then in verse 7 he says, Is it not right for me to feel this way about you? Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's passion for them. He is excited about their abiding in Christ. Uh, Third John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Again, Paul builds up 
this idea of partnership together in the gospel. You are partakers with me of grace. And Paul has affection for them. What kind of affection? The affection of Christ Jesus. The love that God has for them is he shares that love with me so that I love you that way. And that's how we are to love one another. Because the love of God flows through us and it flows out to one another. What did Jesus say in John 13? A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How do we love each other? Not just in good times and just not when we agree, but all the time. How do we demonstrate love for one another in the midst of conflict or disagreement? I would encourage you to think about that particularly as we enter into a new political season. What does it look like to disagree in love? So what does Paul specifically pray for these Philippians about? Verse 9 and 10, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and thereby be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul calls them to not some generic idea of love, not a just sort of, uh, Lord, bless them, but that they would abound in love, to increase, to advance, to reach maturity in love. And notice, he, he, he prays uh, that their love would abound. He doesn't give them an object. Love for, love for what or love for whom? For God? For each other? Yeah, all of it. All of it. What's the greatest command? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second, which is similar? Love your neighbor as yourself. I pray that your love would abound for God and for neighbor. Those two commands are inseparable. 1 John 4, 19, we love because God first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so Paul prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The word knowledge uh, Paul uses here, he'll use about 15 times in this letter. And it always means knowledge of God and knowledge of Christ. This love grows out of knowing God more intimately. The better we know God, the more we're like God in our character, the more we will love him and others. The, the world talks about love, but it's this sort of ambiguous sentimentality. I mean, how many times have you heard a young person 
date someone for a week and then say, I love them. And then a week later, they break up. We can't really know someone we do not know. But as we grow to know God, and as we grow to know, we lo- to know each other, which takes some time and takes some effort, we will grow in our love. Love with knowledge and all discernment, meaning practical insight that shapes our conduct. So that, in order that, you will be a holy people, ready for the day of Christ when he returns. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we ask uh, that we each leave tonight with some truth from your word that penetrates our hearts and our minds uh, that would uh, help us to uh, think more carefully about who you are and what you call us to be and to do. Father, we want to love you. We want to love each other. We want to live as people who are known uh, for being your disciples. And so we ask uh, for your spirit to work in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.